0: This sermon was preached at University Park Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. For more
1: information about UPBC, visit upbchouston.org. Let's go to the Lord together and ask Him for His grace as we look to His Word. Jesus, You are our hope, and You are a living hope.
0: And we praise you, Lord, for your victory over sin and death. Lord, we pray that this morning you would open eyes to your wonder and glory. Lord, we pray you would open eyes to our own sin. If we have walked through life maybe comparing ourselves to others or, or, or thinking that really our hope is within ourselves. Oh, Lord, would you expose that, we pray. Would you open us up to truth that you might save us, save us from ourselves, save us from our sin, show us
1: Christ, Lord. We pray he would be exalted and lifted up in our time together. We love you. We trust you. We ask you to be glorified. We ask, Spirit, that you would be at work in this time. Be our teacher, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus Christ died on the cross and
0: rose from the dead. He died on the cross and rose from the dead. He rose. Let me give you three historical realities to consider this this Easter Sunday. If you're a believer, I hope this would encourage you. If you're not a Christian here this morning, I hope this would be something for you to think about and consider. Thanks to Justin Taylor for an article I saw this week that was helpful to summarize these. Number one, the tomb of Jesus of Nazareth was discovered empty. His tomb was discovered empty. You see that in six places in the New Testament. Luke and Acts, John, Paul mentions it in 1 Corinthians, Mark and Matthew. So these are some of the earliest materials to be found in the New Testament, and they all attest to an empty tomb. Also, women, as many of you know, were reported to have discovered the empty tomb. And in that culture, in that day, a woman's testimony was not seen as credible. So why would the records still say that a woman discovered the empty tomb unless it were actually true? If you wanted to bolster that story, why not say that men... Found the empty tomb. Consider the Jewish response to the empty tomb. They said Jesus' body was stolen by his followers. Which is, isn't it, an implicit admission that it was, in fact, empty. We need an explanation for why. So that's reality number one, an empty tomb. Reality number two: many people experienced appearances of Jesus alive after his death. Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 15 a time when Jesus appears to over 500 individuals, 500 people at one time. So on the basis of Paul's testimony alone, virtually all historical scholars agree that various individuals and groups experienced appearances of Jesus alive after his death. Gerd Ludemann writes, it may be taken as historically certain that Peter and the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. Fact number three, the followers of Jesus believed in the resurrection. The followers of Jesus believed in the resurrection. It wasn't expected. It wasn't seen as normal. After his crucifixion, his followers were devastated and demoralized and hiding in fear for their lives. But they became so completely convinced of Jesus' resurrection, that when threatened with death, not one of them recanted. Even the Pharisee Paul, who persecuted Christians, suddenly became a Christian himself. As did Jesus' skeptical younger brother James. Luke Timothy Johnson comments that some sort of powerful, transformative experience is required to generate the sort of movement that early Christianity was. N.T. Wright says it this way, That is why, as a historian, I cannot explain the rise of early Christianity unless Jesus rose again, leaving an empty tomb behind him. Now, it's likely that you've heard some of these evidences before. Perhaps you're here this morning and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. I'm so glad that you're here to worship with us and to to be with us this morning. I wonder if you've thought much about the importance of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. I wonder if you've thought about these evidences, historical evidences that Jesus rose from the tomb. It is an outlandish claim. Not to mention that he claimed to be God in human flesh. And that his death on the cross was actually a substitute atonement for the sins of all who would trust in him. The Bible speaks of sin as rebellion against a holy creator. That God created us and we've rebelled against him. Friend, Easter brings all these questions to the forefront of our minds. But sometimes it's easier to dismiss them, kind of out of hand, because they seem far away from actual life, from the things that I'm actually thinking about and struggling with today. So I hope that today, this morning, you'll see a connection. The real life connection between someone who was hurting and isolated and helpless and what happened when they came to Jesus. In our passage this morning, Jesus will make an audacious outlandish claim like the one I've been talking about for the last few minutes that he can forgive sins. but instead of leaving that claim in the air on its own he actually provides a real tangible example of his authority of his power everyone in the room that day understood the logic and they all walked away glorifying God amazed understanding Jesus must have the authority on earth to forgive sins. Friends, that is good news. Easter is good news. It's about good news. So our church is praying for you, friend, that if you're not a Christian that you would walk away today, a new person like the man in our story does, that you would carefully consider the story that we're going to talk through and then it would land on you by God's grace. That you have eyes to see who Jesus is and to trust him. He's going to narrow down your options. If you have options and ways of sort of dismissing him and not paying attention to him, and thinking of him mainly as a religious leader, one of many. He wants to kind of push those away in passages like this. So I pray that you would give him your full attention. And for you that are a believer here this morning, Christians, members at UPBC, he wants our full attention as well. He's teaching us in this passage about himself. He's teaching us about loving our neighbors. He's teaching us the urgency of leveraging our short lives for His purposes. So look with me at our passage here in Luke 5, beginning in verse 17. This is God's Word. On one of those days, as He was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee, in Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with Him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let, let him down in his bed through the tiles into the, midst, into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? What he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. In amazement, seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. I love this story. It's beautiful. It's a true story. It's like a diamond that we can admire from very different angles as we shift it just a little bit. And that's the way we're going to approach it this morning, from different perspectives. I want to look at the different perspectives of each character in this account. So if you're taking notes, that's how we're going to walk through the text from the perspective of, number one, the religious leaders, the religious leaders, number two, the friends, number three, the paralytic himself, number four, Jesus, and lastly, number five, the crowd. Religious leaders, friends, paralytic, Jesus, and the crowd. The main point of this passage is really clearly stated there in verse 24. I know you saw it as I read it. The Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. That's our takeaway. Jesus has authority to forgive sins. Friend, that's still true today. May it be clear this morning. Let's first consider the perspective of the religious leaders of this account. Uh, at this point in Luke's gospel, the focus has been on Jesus' growing ministry and popularity. And we can trust that the word about Jesus is spreading abroad, but it's also making its way kind of to the the top of the religious ladder. And so he's continuing to teach and heal, but his audience changes a bit. Luke mentions on those days he was teaching, verse 17, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem to hear him. So these are the officials of Judaism. And they've come from around all around the region, even as far as Jerusalem. So the Pharisees are one of four major religious groups in the first century Judaism, along with Sadducees and Essenes and Zealots. They're not really a priestly group. Rather, they're they're teachers whose goal is to keep the nation faithful to the Mosaic law. In order to do that, they had developed tradition that gave rulings on how the law could be applied virtually to every situation and context. And then you had the teachers of the law, also known as scribes often in Scripture, who are like these religious lawyers who supported this extra-biblical tradition with verses. And so they're like religious parliamentarians, kind of letting everyone know what's allowable and what's not, what's in order and what's not. Now, this is Luke's first mention of the Pharisees observing Jesus' ministry. They were there investigating and making judgments about Jesus. And so in response to Jesus' claim that he has authority to forgive sins, look at we see there in verse 21. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks
1: blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, lest we be too hard on them, uh, their
0: statement here is partly correct, isn't it? The reality is that sin is ultimately and foremost an offense against God himself. Therefore, only God has the right and the ability to forgive sins. So Luke loves these questions that start with who, right? Uh, who can forgive sins but God alone? These are little arrows that he's going to use to point us over and over to Jesus. So the Pharisees are speaking better than they actually knew. So we know that Jesus is God from reading Luke's gospel, the incarnate Son he, in fact, does have the authority to forgive sins. And so they wrongly misjudge who Jesus is and accuse him of blasphemy. There are several categories for blasphemy. Here it's speaking of God in an irreverent or false way, saying you can do something that only God could do. And, and face it, if someone of your, one of your friends at lunch said they could do this, you would also have this reaction. We're going to see a pattern in Luke's gospel of the people of Israel missing Jesus And Luke is going to make a point about that. Luke is going to argue that it's an outworking of an ancient kind of prophecy and commission that we're going to read about in Isaiah chapter 6. I'll just read it to you. He helps, but this is a tool that Luke uses to help us to understand the rejection. In Isaiah 6, the Lord tells Isaiah, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy. And blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. When someone asks Jesus, why do you speak in parables? He's not, he doesn't say,
1: uh, because everybody likes a good story. He quotes this passage. So this explains Israel's response. The Pharisees and scribes have actually hard hearts toward God.
0: They're blind to His purposes and to His word. And they are at the top of the religious order in Judaism in Jesus' day. Friends, this is proof right before our eyes that you can have the right theological position and not have a right relationship with God at the same time. The right theological position and miss God. The right position, no one can forgive sins but God alone. But they miss God who's sitting right there in front of them. So let that be a warning to all of us. Later in Luke, Jesus is going to say to his disciples in Luke 12, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. We'll learn more about the religious leaders as we go through Luke, but we'll see that their true love was for themselves and their reputation. In reality, they are actually the paralytics in this story. I think Luke is even saying a little bit tongue-in-cheek there in verse 17 that they were just sitting there when all this is happening. And they should have been directing traffic to get people to Jesus. I pray that we wouldn't be caught as followers of Jesus just sitting there. That I wouldn't be caught as a leader just sitting there instead of being busy about the work Jesus has given me to do. Or that we would take the role of a ministry inspector. Is everything going just right? Is everything right? Nope, I found something that's not just right and we need to report it. Instead of that, being compelled ourselves to obey Jesus and love like Jesus loved. It reminds me of the woman who came up to D.L. Moody with a complaint. And this is what she said to him. She said, Mr. Moody, I don't like the way you do evangelism. Well, ma'am, let me ask you, how do you do it? Moody asked. She replied, I don't. Moody responded, well, I like the way of my doing it better than the way of you not doing it. Amen. Instead of ministry inspectors, let's be doers of the word. I'm not saying that we don't pay careful attention to the ministries we support and what happens here on Sundays, but let's be doers of the word. This is the first confrontation with the religious leaders that it really sets a somber tone kind of against the triumph of the story. That's going to be a preview of things to come. Ultimately, it's this issue, Jesus' true identity, fully God, fully man, that's going to send him to the cross rejected by his own. So, from the perspective of the religious leaders, Jesus is a threat and a blasphemer. Now, let's look at a totally opposite perspective, someone who's not just sitting there. Let's consider the friends that bring the paralyzed man to Jesus. That's number two, the friends. Now, we know from Mark's gospel that this scene takes place in a home in Capernaum, and Jesus is teaching and a crowd is growing and growing and growing. So Mark tells us that so many were gathered to hear that there was no more room, not even at the door. So imagine that, people crowding into a house first, and then someone realizing, okay, the house is full, and now they're crowding around the house, people sticking their heads into the windows, crowding as close as they can to hear Jesus' voice shuffling around, they could get a good angle. That's what these men see when they come around the corner. Here in verse 18. Let's pick it up there. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. Wow. Okay. These men immediately decide, okay, there's no way to get in the normal way, the way that most people enter homes, so they're going to go through the roof. Now, this doesn't make a lot of sense to us if you're thinking about your roof and my roof. Uh, The construction of homes is different. As we're looking here in ancient Palestine, the roof is kind of a hangout spot. Uh, It's where people would spend time drying clothes and getting rest or just relaxing. The roofs were flat, so they're made of timbers that were laid parallel and then kind of got sticks across those timbers, and then it's all padded down with reeds and thistles and twigs, and then about a foot of earth or dirt is put on, and and it's all kind of packed down. Luke mentions tiles here. That could be just a way of referring to the material in a general way. And then usually homes would have a staircase on the side leading up to the roof, which is likely what the men saw in their urgency to, to go on up. Who knows if this was their plan from the beginning, they just see an opening and they go. Once they're on the top of the roof, They decide to dig through it. I don't think State Farm covers this. I don't know whose house this is, but that might be the first question. And as they did this, you can just be sure there's a great commotion below. The roofing materials are falling on the people, likely on Jesus and others. Likely he stops teaching and everybody just stands back and is wondering what is going on. And then eventually light begins to shine through the roof And then, it seems, on the spot, they rig up some sort of pulley system to lower this man down from the roof onto onto his bed. This is a crazy, creative effort to get this man to Jesus. Who knows how long this process took? But we know that it was motivated by an urgent faith. They had to get their friend to Jesus, no matter what it took. And this is the first thing that Luke records about Jesus' reaction when he saw their faith. He saw their faith. So their actions revealed their faith, as do ours, brothers and sisters. Their actions revealed their faith. And I think Jesus is referring to the friends and the man who was on the bed. His faith as well. Because this is a saving faith. Let's just make some observations about these friends and their actions to get this man before Jesus. Aren't you struck by how committed they are? How committed they are to get their friend to Jesus. I don't like lines in crowds. So when I see a big line or something, a lot of people around, I tend to say, I can have that barbecue another day. I'm gonna go find a shorter line. These guys are undeterred by obstacles. They find a way to get their friend to Jesus. Friends, we all know there are times in our evangelism and in life where God opens doors and closes doors. There are times when we see a closed door in our life and we trust God's providence and we move on. But there are other times when we must be creative and persistent, like this, in sharing the gospel. Times when we have to rip open roofs to get someone to Jesus. The easy path is closed, but I'm not going to conclude that's not God's will that I continue to share the gospel. Maybe it's time to rip off the roof. At the root of the urgency is a true need. Now, these men likely do not understand the full identity of Jesus yet. They know He's a powerful healer and teacher. And they love their friend. They know Jesus could heal him and change his life. And even with this limited knowledge, about Jesus and the physical need being likely primary. They're willing to vandalize a home, take off a roof to get this man to Jesus. Beloved, we have so much more information than they did, don't we? So much more information. We know truly who Jesus is, the incarnate Son of God who died to purchase salvation, to save sinners, to forgive us of our sins. And we know the true need of our friends and neighbors and the people groups in the world that have no access to the gospel. Some who live in our own city. Some live in parts of the world that are very dangerous to get to. Almost impossible, you might say. The story teaches us that the issue at hand is much deeper than physical healing. Sin is the issue. People who die apart from saving faith in Jesus are plunged into an eternity of conscious torment, suffering, bearing the wrath of God for their sin against a holy, righteous, eternal God.
1: Listen, every single person who dies apart from Christ. There's no other way to be saved from that. There's no other books to read. There's no other seminar to go to. No other religion, religion to get excited about. There's one way to be saved from that. And it's Jesus. And if there's one way and eternity is at stake, friend, don't we
0: see how urgency and creativity and persistence and
1: faithfulness in evangelism only makes sense? Does eternity sit that heavily on you, brother or sister? Speaking to a conference in Scotland, Hudson
0: Taylor once shared that he, quote, imagine the population of China, at that time it was 400 million, walking by him, single file, one after the other, hour after hour, day after day, year after year. He said it would take 23 years for all of them to pass by. However, it would take the total number of converts at that time in China, only half an hour to walk by. And he reported that the mortality rate at that time was 33,000 who were dying daily without a Savior in China. Friends, you see, he saw their faces. He personalized what this reality tells us, and often we hear Sunday after Sunday, but
1: put faces to it. This is the need before us, beloved. And the Savior is before us.
0: These men look like the first missionaries, don't they? Inconveniencing themselves, risking their lives, their reputation, maybe jail time, so that someone else can sit before Jesus. Listen, when you begin to do this and you walk like this, you can expect to be misunderstood. You can expect things to be dangerous. When you start digging through roofs, people get mad, Satan especially. Other religious groups and governments sometimes get mad. But friends, it's worth it. Jesus is worth it. And these friends remind us of that so well. Oh, may God raise up people, men and women, boys and girls from our own congregation who have a burden for the lost and are burdened with even creative ways, risk-taking ways to take the gospel to those who have never heard. These friends loved their friend. Now, let's think about the story from the man, the perspective of the man on the bed, the paralytic, number three. We already know this man has some good friends. We also know he's paralyzed. He's unable to walk for himself. This could have been a condition that he had since birth. The reputation for Jesus healing people in Capernaum especially has grown to the point that this man understands Jesus is the real deal. Surely his expectation is that Jesus is going to Heal him if he could just get close enough. And his creative friends bring him to the roof, lower him down. Everyone's looking at him. He's right before Jesus. But the words that Jesus says to him, I would wager, are not the words he was expecting to hear. Look at them again in verse 20. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. What do you think he's thinking when he hears these words? Is there a a slight disappointment that comes over him? Often Jewish, in Jewish thinking, there's a connection between personal sins and sickness and disease. Many likely believe this man's paralysis is a result of some personal sin in his own life. But we know Jesus tells us in John's gospel, that is not a connection that we should be quick to make. In John 9, he says of a blind man, it was not this man who sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And yet Jesus responds to this man's desperate plea for healing with spiritual healing. He wants to be physically healed. Jesus heals him first spiritually. So Jesus is teaching this man. He is teaching us something about what's most important in life. This man's greatest need is not to be physically healed. It's to be forgiven of his sin. This tells us something about the human condition. You could even be paralyzed, unable to get around with the help of your friends, lying motionless on a sickbed for your whole life and be full of sin. Your greatest need still being forgiveness. Being guilty before a holy God. The physical diseases and the suffering that we endure and that we've seen throughout the Gospels are pointers and reminders that this world is broken and darkened because of sin. And our bodies are affected by sin. But our deepest problem is the guilt that we have before a holy God for essentially spitting in His face turning our backs on him as our creator and loving father, living lives our own way. Jesus says things like this that make it clear. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands and two feet and be thrown into the eternal fire. In other words, it's better to limp into heaven then run full out, healthy and vital
1: into hell. So this man is confronted with his sin, but Jesus doesn't leave him in his sin. Because of his faith in Jesus, he is forgiven. Jesus sees his
0: faith and forgives him. This is not a perfect faith. This is not even a holistic faith. This is probably an incomplete faith. We were look at it on a theological exam. But it's not a generic faith or a general optimism. It is faith specifically, uniquely, solely in Jesus Christ. This is saving faith for us. And this faith changes this man's eternal destiny. And then in order to show that he has authority to do this, he actually does heal the man physically as well. But notice the, Luke's description of the man's response after uh, this is taking place, verse 25. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. So the man rose up to walk, picked up his bed and walked home. The bed carried him in, he carried the bed out. He was healed both physically and spiritually. He's a new creation. Friend, this is what happens when we place our faith In Jesus Christ, we too are made new. That's what you heard, I hope, from the testimonies from the baptisms this morning. Jesus died and rose so that we too could die to our own sin and rise to walk in newness of life. So this man rose up and walked. Jesus too will rise up and walk out of an empty tomb in just a few chapters here in Luke's gospel. Death could not hold him. The Father raised him up as a sign to all that his sacrifice was sufficient for all who would trust him. Friend, do you trust the only one who can forgive your sins? Do you trust Jesus? Let's look at Jesus. Luke puts the spotlight on him. It's our fourth perspective that we see here. Number four, Jesus. Jesus saw the faith of the man in the, in the, in, who was the paralytic. He pronounced what no other human being has ever pronounced with any authority, that your sins are forgiven. And so the Pharisees, we know from other gospel accounts, are thinking to themselves, it seems, who does this man think he is? Only God can forgive sins, blasphemy. And that brings us there to verse 22. When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk. So Jesus reads, I think, the thoughts of these teachers like an open book. The father opens up their minds to him and he challenges their thoughts before it really even makes it to their mouths. Instead of calling down lightning on their heads, he responds really with a question of his own, kind of a a parable that's going to reveal more about who he is, which is easier to say that your sins are forgiven or to get up and walk. Well, about it. it is actually easier to say your sins are forgiven because there's no immediate way to verify your claim anyone could technically say it we wouldn't know whether or not it was true or not but if you say to a paralytic someone who can't walk who's paralyzed get up and walk the expectation is he's going to get up and walk or you're a fraud So Jesus is going to work from the greater to the lesser in a sense by doing the harder thing kind of practically, which is going to give him credibility for the claim that he's making to forgive sin. So pick it up there in verse 24. But that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. Did you catch that little juicy detail in verse 17 that Luke gives us? The power of God was with Jesus to heal. The power of God was with him to heal. And notice here the man glorifies God as he walks away. He was unable to come to Jesus on his own and by God's grace now he's been redeemed and made new. He walks away glorifying God. Spurgeon imagines seeing this man on the street. This is what he writes. He says, I think I see him. He sets one foot down to the glory of God. He plants the other on the same note. He walks to God's glory. He carries his bed to God's glory. He moves his whole body to the glory of God. He speaks, he shouts, he sings, he leaps to the glory of God. All this Jesus says, not that you would know that that, that Jesus is a great healer and He will heal all your diseases, but that you would know the Son of Man, we'll say more about that title in a few weeks, the Son of Man has authority to forgive sin. That's what you need to know. That's what you need to take away from this account. It just gives us a hint, doesn't it? The backbone, the purpose for these healings of Jesus, to display who He really is and what He's come to do. atone. For sins. Glorify God with His life that is perfect and sinless, and a death that pays the ransom for a people that were lost, and a resurrection from the dead. Forgive sins, reconcile sinners with their God. So, friend, do you see how Jesus is narrowing down the options of what you can actually think about Him? You cannot merely say that He's a good teacher. I like Jesus. Jesus likes me. Friends, he teaches and says things that that he can only do what God does. Essentially, he is God in the flesh. You have to reckon with that. You can't say he's merely an example to follow because his purpose is to die for sinners, to save us. We can't die to save others. He is either, as C.S. Lewis put it, a liar, Pharisees, check that box,
1: a lunatic, he's going to, be, going to get accused of that. Or he's Lord. Friend, who do you say that Jesus is? How do you answer that question? I think the last perspective that we'll think about helps us
0: here. We'll conclude with this one, the crowd. Look at verse 26 with me. A crowd. In amazement sees them all, and they glorify God, and we're filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. We're not too surprised by this, are we? They've seen God's power on display to heal. They've seen the kind of healing that you would not ever forget. Uh, bones being reshaped, legs being strengthened and lengthened, that they were once withered, a life changed before their eyes, a man who hasn't stood up for maybe his whole life, stand up and walk. We have seen extraordinary things. So amazement and awe gripped them to the core. So God's power on display. But what sticks out to me is that Luke doesn't record anyone saying, raising their
1: hand, "Uh, Jesus, now could you forgive my sins? Now can you forgive me? I'm a sinner as well. I'm like the paralytic. I need to be forgiven. So having eyes, they do not see. Ears, they do not hear.
0: Friends, this is easy to do, even on Easter. Even on Easter. Hear a sermon about Jesus, walk away thinking,
1: okay, that felt right, it was good, yeah, I like that. But back to normal. Back to normal. Friend, don't miss Jesus. It's all
0: about you now personally responding. You personally, seeing Jesus for who he is and responding in faith. Repent of your sins. Turn away from running your life the way you want to live it and run it and turn it over to Jesus and put your faith in him. He died to purchase salvation for you, to forgive your sins. He died and rose again on the third day. He got up out of the grave. The tomb is empty. He's alive. And friend, he's coming again. He is coming again. Listen to what Paul says in Acts 17. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Friend, look around you. You're you're looking at hundreds of, of spiritual paralytics that have met Jesus. He's changed us. He is our hope. He's the center of all we are and all we want to do. He forgives our sin. He raises us up to walk in newness of life. Friend, don't hear these as mere words today. Hear the voice of Jesus Himself saying to you, son or daughter, come to me.
1: Your sins are forgiven. Pray you would come to it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and for the privilege it is to gather as your people.
0: Thank you for the Lord's Day. Thank you every Sunday that we're reminded that you are alive and reigning and coming again. Lord, we pray that this reality would land on us and sit on us in a a way that produces the kind of loving urgency that we see in this passage. The kind of real, honest understanding about ourselves and our
1: need for Jesus. Lord, we pray that we would be a faithful witness in this community. We
0: pray we would be humble knowing that we too came in on a mat. Nothing we did commended ourselves to you. It's all you. You've shown your power, your grace to forgive us. You died for us. You rose for us. Lord, may our hope be in you
1: and only you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.